You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. have a handout for a Bible. We're, we, have, we have been working our way through the uh, book of Proverbs this semester. We're looking at what wisdom is. And I've tried to say each week that wisdom is uh, skill at life in the gray areas of life. Like if you think about it, there are, there are some very clear black and white do's and don'ts in this world. For example, you do not go to the UC right when class gets out for lunch. That's a, you will not eat. That's a no-no. Uh, or another, another black and white do not do. You do not pick up your phone and, and, and answer a phone call when you're on this, one of the study floors at the lib and have a conversation. Right? Peeps. Um, but, you know, in addition, you know, outside of the black and white rules of life, there's a whole bunch of gray. Most of our life is kind of lived in this where the rules don't really apply kind of zone. Like, what are you going to wear to the job fair this week? Uh, Who are you going to ask to the date party? And when are you going to ask them? Because timing matters. If you ask them too soon, then you seem really eager. If you ask them too late, you seem really desperate. So timing matters. When are you going to ask? So wisdom is navigating the grayness of life with skill. And... uh, What we're going to learn tonight is you cannot navigate the gray zone of life unless you have deep, rich, intimate friendships. So we're going to look at a couple Proverbs. We'll kick it off with uh, Proverbs 27, 17 for you tonight, and it reads this. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Or you could read one woman sharpens another as well. So this is God's word. Let me pray, and then we'll kind of consider the Proverbs that are in front of you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for um, the joy of opening your word. I pray that you would teach us, Father. I know that there are certainly people in this room all over the spectrum in terms of belief, in terms of emotion, in terms of uh, just how they're feeling. And so I pray that you would meet with each one of us and um, show us beautiful things in your word. Show us yourself through your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to think with me really quickly, just in your own head, where were you in May of 2008? Go back into your mental calendar, May of 2008. You probably don't remember a story. There was a story that got global attention in May of 2008 that took place in Zagreb, which is uh, the capital of Croatia. The story got global attention. And what happened was there was an ordinary working woman who went to her job, came home from her job, and fixed herself a cup of tea, sat down, and died of natural causes. And the story got global attention. And here's why. Because she died in 1973. And her body was discovered in 2008. Which means, for 35 years, no one reported her missing, 
No one knew she was missing. No one knew that she was gone. No family looked for her. No friends looked for her. And it was like sort of this global, like, tragedy, like this depressing story of here's this person for 35 years. No one knew her. No one knew her. And I think that's, that's kind of ironic because in our day and age, we have tons of people that know about us. We've got thousands of Facebook friends, some of y'all hundreds of Instagram followers. Uh, some of y'all come into our room like RUF and you're excited to see people and hug people and high-five people. And yet, uh, I would dare say that we experience the same thing that this woman did, that not a lot of people really know us, like know us, know us, like intimately know us. A lot of people know about us, but not many people know us. And here's the thing. You will not go through life well. You will not flourish in this life unless you have people that really know you. Deep, intimate, personal friends. You cannot be a wise person in this life unless you have deep, close friendships. But the problem is we're really bad at that, right? I mean, we're really bad at friendships. Think about your own, your, your own friendships. So a lot of y'all can't confront your friends, like, if you have friends that you know are making stupid decisions or in horrible relationships or are just doing things that bother you, you have usually one of two reactions. Either you don't say anything at all or you kind of blow up on them. And both of those are really bad ways of confronting someone, right? Both of those are bad. Uh, a lot of y'all can't do conflict with each other. So some of y'all... Um, uh, have been friends with each other, like best friends with, the, with each other for like eight years, and then you move in together, and then like normal, simple roommate stuff like makes you like hate the person and like want to trash eight years of a great friendship, right? Because we don't know how to do conflict. We're bad at it. And some of you, I will uh, say, come in your freshman year with a certain group of friends, and by your senior year have a completely different friend group. You've, you've kind of transformed your whole friend group from freshman year to senior year. Largely because, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons might be because we just don't know how to do friendships. We don't know how to do it. So, what do we do then? We have to develop wisdom in this area. And here's where Proverbs kind of helps us and speaks to us and says, okay, if you want to have deep, lasting friendships, then you have to understand and implement kind of two key things. And these are the two things I want to explore with you tonight. You have to understand the development of friendship and then the power for friendships. If you want good, lasting, deep, intimate friendships, you have to implement and understand two key factors. How friendships develop and then where you get the power for them. Okay, So we're going to look at these one at a time. And by the way, just to cite my sources, footnote, getting a lot of help from some guy named Tim Keller. Um, but here's, uh, here's the first thing. Let's look at the development of friendship. If you look at Proverbs 18.24, we'll just start there. It says this. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So you see the comparison. He's comparing companions, two different types of people, companions and friends. You have many companions, only a few friends. Companions are acquaintances, right? These are your classmates that you have study, pro, you know, uh, school projects with or group projects with. These may be like your Facebook friends, like people that you just kind of know, write funny things to, but like you're not like tight with. And you can have a lot of companions, but you can only have a small number of like really close friends. And here's the reason why that is, is because to have really close friends takes a truckload of time, 
and it takes a truckload of effort. Right? Friendships are just messy and hard and frustrating and confusing. And if you're not willing to make the time and make the effort, then you can't develop a friendship. But let's say you do want to make the time and make the effort. Then how do you actually develop? Not just a companion, not just like a buddy, not a bro, but like a friend. Well, I want to kind of jump in and look at four kind of steps. Four steps to how you develop a friendship, an intimate, rich friendship. Here's the first thing that you would have to do if you want a real, like a real friendship with someone, a tight friendship with someone. You have to intentionally commit to them. That's the first thing. You have to intentionally choose to commit to them. Look at Proverbs 17, 17. It says this. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. This is saying that a friend is different from a sibling. A friend's different from your brother because a friend is intentional, deliberate. If you go back to this proverb I just read a second ago, um, actually, never mind. Look at 1717 again. It's basically saying that your brother will be there in adversity. But the implication is it's because he's your brother. He kind of has to. He uh, was born into your family. And so if you're born into a family, that brother will take care of you. But... That doesn't mean he likes you, right? That doesn't mean he wants to hang out with you. A friend didn't just become your friend because you share the same parents. Your friend is your friend because they voluntarily signed up for you. This is why a friend is in some ways even better than a sibling. This is what 1824 is saying. Look at it again. It says, they stick closer than a brother because they've chosen to. They They don't just share your DNA. They've chosen you. And what have they chosen to do? They've chosen to commit to you. Again, 1717, a friend loves at all times. Good times, bad times, boring times. In other words, friendship's not based on convenience. A friend is, I will be there for you even when I'm not really benefiting from it. When I'm not really getting anything out of it. When you're not advancing my social life anymore. I'm committed to you. That's the first thing, that if you want to develop a real friendship, you have to intentionally, deliberately choose, I will be there for you no matter what. Good times, bad times, boring times, when you're not helping me anytime. That's the first kind of step. Let's look at the second step. You have to be willing to commiserate with them. And commiseration is just a word that literally means to cry with, to hurt with. To enter into their pain with. Here's where I get this from. Look at uh, Proverbs 25, 20. It's on your sheet. It says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on soda, delicious, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So here's someone who has a heavy heart. Here's someone who's hurting. And here comes along their so-called friend trying to cheer them up by like singing a happy song to try to like make them feel better. And it says that experience is like having your coat ripped off on a cold day like today. It doesn't feel good. It's not pleasant. That's not what friends do. Okay, why? Well, um, 
This was actually really helpful for me. I don't know if you've uh, heard of or interacted with any of Brene Brown's stuff. She's a famous kind of researcher. She's got some famous YouTube videos, TED Talks out there. Um, she did, a, she did a, a talk that was not her famous vulnerability talk, but she did some other talk where somebody went in and kind of sliced out some of the audio and then animated like the two or three minutes of audio that they kind of jacked from this talk that she did. But she was doing this segment on the difference between sympathy and empathy. And the animation and what she was saying was really helpful for me. She says, okay, picture your friend who's really hurting, who has a heavy heart, kind of like this passage says. And it's almost like they're down in like a hole, like a pit. They're at the bottom of a pit and they're just overwhelmed and they're in pain and they're stuck. Sympathy is you as their friend crawling down into the hole with them and just sitting there with them in the bottom of the pit saying, you're not alone. I'm with you. She says that's sympathy. That's what, that's what the heart wants when it's hurting. Sorry, I said that wrong. That's empathy. <laughs> just messed up the whole term here. That's the good way, empathy. And she says sympathy is when your so-called friends kind of stand at the top of the ledge looking down into the pit and like kind of lobbing a care package down in there and like saying, I hope you feel better. Like text me if you need something. And her point is basically this. Sometimes all that the human heart needs when it is hurting is just someone to crawl into the pit with you and just to be with you, just to cry with you, just to feel with you, to connect with you at that point and to not kind of... Christians have a bad tendency of doing this sometimes where we just kind of lob Bible verses down there. We just kind of lob little care packages down in there because it's safer. You're, you're at a distance. You don't have to feel the pain yourself of going down into the hurt with them. And I'll, and I'll say this because I can speak firsthand as a guy, but I think guys in particular have a really hard time with this. Uh, at least my friend group does. Maybe you're a lot better at this. But I, I would generally say guys have a harder problem with this, because when somebody shares something really hard, like you're in the group of guys and somebody shares something that's heavy or serious or weighty, that level of intensity we don't really know how to handle. So our instinct is just to kind of make jokes. We just kind of laugh or make snarky or sarcastic comments to diffuse the seriousness because it's too heavy, like we don't know how to handle it. But I'll say this if guys, if you want intimate, real friendships, you have to rewire your instincts there. You have to restrain the instincts to kind of make it all go away by saying something snarky and go into the pit with your friend and hurt with them. That's the second key, the second step of if you want to develop a friendship, you've got to go in there and hurt, commiserate with them. So commitment, commiseration. Here's the third step if you want a real intimate friendship is you have to be willing to confront them. You have to be willing to confront your friends. Look at uh, Proverbs 27.5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Now that's interesting if you think about it. This is saying there's such thing as friendly wounds, but enemy kisses. And it's kind of profound once you start thinking about it. What is a friendly wound? A friendly wound is a wound that a friend inflicts upon you. It's it's, um, words that your friend needs to hear 
They have to hear it, but it's going to be really painful in the moment for them to hear it. But in time, it will heal them. In time, it will bless them. This is why, if you look at the um, Proverbs 28, 23, it says, He who rebukes a man will in the end gain more favor than he who has a flattering tongue. It's not going to feel good in the moment, but in the end, they will gain favor. This is, this is a friend that's not fighting against you, but fighting for you. Willing to say something hard to you that you need to hear that might hurt you in the moment, but in the long run, it's going to bless you. It's going to help you. It's going to heal you. And here's why. Well, actually, let me, let me, let me say this. What if you have a friend that you know that you need to confront? You know you need to kind of say something to, but you're afraid. You're afraid to, sit, you're afraid to kind of enter into that conversation. What happens? Well, the Bible says um, if you're unwilling to say something hard to your friend, then you're actually relating to them like an enemy. That's actually the behavior of an enemy, someone that only flatters them, only kisses them, you know, theoretically, but is unwilling to say something hard. And here's why. It's because you're setting their life up for destruction. Look at um, 29.5. It says, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. And that net is, the, is like a net to like trap an animal in. So your, you know, your friend has some bad decisions that they're making or some bad things about them. And they're going through life unaware of, perhaps, what they're doing. If you don't say anything to them, you might as well be setting up their life for destruction because they're going to walk through life with those instincts and those bad habits and just wreck their life. And you're going to kiss them along the way and flatter them along the way while they ruin their life. That's not what a friend does. That's what an enemy does. Sets them up for destruction. A friend is willing to confront. Look, when I was in college, one of the most pivotal conversations I ever had was my... um, Junior year, I remember my two good friends at the time, Blake and Clint, came into my room, kind of sat me down, and had this kind of heart-to-heart conversation where they basically looked at me and said, Matt, you are a social chameleon. Vividly remember this. My computer was on. It was back to my right. I was sitting down. This was like slow motion. They looked at me and said, you're a social chameleon. When you're with this group of people, we've noticed you act this way. And you're with, when, you're when, when you're with this group of people, you act this way. It's like you have all these different personas in you and you just pull out these different masks and put them on to get the approval of everybody around you. Now, in the moment, that really ticked me off. I was really hurt by that. I mean, this is why I vividly remember this conversation because they're confronting me. But man, when when that conversation was over and they left and then I kind of went back to life, that was on the forefront of my mind. And I started to become self-aware that as I went through life, yeah, when I was with this, like the group of Christian friends that I was with, I kind of was a little bit more Christian-y with my language. When I was with my philosophy classmates, I was a little bit more philosophical and artistic. And uh, when I was with this group of people, I was, I did act a different way. And so I was beginning to realize my sin goes so much deeper than I ever thought it was begin to be exposed that I worship the approval of other people more than anything else. And it took my friends to say that to me for, for, in order for me to see it. And in the moment, and in time, it actually helped me. It blessed me because I became self-aware of who I really was and what I really had to struggle with. So if you have a friend that you know that you need to confront, 
you need to ask yourself this question. Which do I love more? Do I love the person more or do I love our relationship more? Because if you love the person more, you will be, you will, you will risk the relationship in order to heal them, in order to speak truth to them. You'll risk the relationship in order to love them. But if you love the relationship more, you'll never risk it. In other words, if you, if you love what you're getting from that person, you'll never risk losing that. Which is another way of saying you really only love yourself. I really only love how I'm benefiting from this. I'm prioritizing my comfort over your well-being. So I'll kiss you and flatter you, and that's the work of an enemy. A friend says, hey, I'm willing for you to be angry at me. I'm willing for this to be weird and awkward for a while. You need to know X. I love you. But you need to know this about yourself. A friend is willing to confront. Here's the last thing. A friend is willing to confess. Willing to confess. Look at Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them find mercy. This is saying um, that you have to find people that you reveal the bad stuff about you in front of. That you, you have to have relationships in which you, you, you um, conceal and reveal that which is ugly about yourself. That you don't hide it, you don't deny it, you don't make excuses for it. You say, okay, I'm going to let you in to see what I'm really like, what I really think about, what I really do behind closed doors, what I, what I really struggle with. That's confession. If you don't have someone in your life that you're letting into that level of your heart and your life, then they're not really a friend yet. You're still keeping them at arm's length. Uh, I think I've, I've shared this with some of y'all before, but um, once a year, my closest friends, those two guys I mentioned before, Blake and Clint, and then another one of my friends named Russ, we live all over the country now. Uh, once a year, we all fly into Asheville, and we, we, we stay in this cabin uh, just a, you know 20 minutes outside of Asheville, and we take a long weekend to be together. And we catch up, and we hang out, and we play, and we eat well, and we do all this fun stuff. We go whitewater rafting, we play paintball, and like jump off waterfalls, and like do silly, crazy stuff. But we also intentionally carve out big chunks of time over our weekend where we just sit around and try to do this thing of like letting each other into the deepest parts of our hearts, where we celebrate each other's successes and then we really share in raw and open and honest ways our failures, our failures in our marriage, our failures with our sexuality, our failures with our job, our failures with the way that we relate to our kids, And I can't tell you, and my wife can attest to this, that coming off of that weekend is one of the most life-giving weekends of my year. Where here's a group of guys that I trust and know and I can be fully emotionally naked in front of without any fear that they're going to reject me and shame me and lecture me. But I can just be totally raw and have them embrace me and love me and pray for me. That's what your heart needs. That's what my heart needs. We need friends. And this, this list is not exhaustive, but just to review, here are the four things. If you, want, if you want to develop a friendship, then you've got to put these steps into play in your relationships. You've got to intentionally commit to them. You have to be willing to commiserate with them. You have to be willing to confront them, and you have to be willing to confess in front of them. Okay? So here's the second question I want to explore with you. Where do you get friends like this? <laughs> where, where, how, do you, like, how do you get this? In other words, how do you get the power to have these sorts of friendships in your life? 
Well, let's look at it. Um, I don't know if y'all seen the TV show uh, The Office, um, but, uh, but Michael Scott, of course, his overt mission in life is for you to like him, right? For you to be his friend. And I was reminded of this quote today. It was one of his little monologues where he says this, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like being liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like my compulsive need, but it's not like my impulsive, but it's not like a compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. And um, if you remember this one episode from the second season where it's bring your daughter to work day, and all of the workers bring in like these little, you know, these children, and so he brings them all into the conference room and he puts in a tape. You remember this? He puts in a tape on the VCR of this old children's episode that, uh, this old children's show that he starred in when he was like a 10 year old little boy actor. And so he wants to connect with the kids and play them this show. And, 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 you know, it's kind of silly and funny. And then at one point, like the puppet puts a microphone in a little young 10 year old Michael Scott's face and basically asks him what his dream is. And here's how he answers as a little kid. My dream is to get married and have a hundred kids so I can have a hundred friends so no one can say no to being my friend. And the puppet on the show is like, that's so heartbreaking. And it's and in the moment in the conference room is like it's suddenly really awkward and like Michael like sulks and kind of like goes to his office and it's like this really awkward, sad moment because you realize his dream didn't come true. He just wants all of these friends and he doesn't really have any friends. And the reason why he doesn't have really any good friends is because he so desperately wants friends. And you see the irony there, that there's something empty inside of him, that he doesn't have this inner fortitude. And so he's so desperate for you to like him and be friends with him that that actually makes him a bad friend. And he pushes people away from him. And I don't think that that's too far off the mark of what happens with us. That there's, we don't have this inner fortitude in us, and so we don't have the ability to ourselves become good friends to therefore make the friends that we need. In other words, let me put it this way. You will never make good friends unless you first become a good friend. You will never make good friends unless you first become a f- good friend. So look at that list that I just marked out, these four things, and kind of... Let's diagnose how you are as a friend real quick in your own head. Intentional chosen commitment. How are you at being there for people like unconditionally? Uh, think about commiseration. How easy is it for you to just hurt with people, to be vulnerable with people? Uh, think about confrontation. Uh, how are you at lovingly confronting your friends? How are you doing in that department? Or um, uh, confession. Like, how easy is it for you to be transparent and let somebody, like, see you all the way through? We don't have good friendships because we aren't good friends. Right? We don't have the friendships that we want because we're the problem. And so the question becomes this. Where do, you, where do you get the power, then, to become a good friend so that you can have good friends? And here's how you get the power. You will get the power to become a good friend only when you experience the friendship of the ultimate friend. You will get the power 
to become a good friend only when you experience the friendship of the ultimate friend. Who's the ultimate friend? Uh, In John 14 through 17, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's kind of explaining everything that's in his heart right before he goes to be crucified. And at this famous place in John 15, he looks at his disciples, and here's what he says to them. This is pretty crazy. He says to them, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And he goes on and he says, I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not going to relate to you just like a king relates to his servants. I'm going to relate to you as friends. I'm going to commit myself to you as a friend. Jesus is the ultimate friend. And so think about it like this. Think about those four characteristics now in terms of how Jesus relates to his people. Intentional commitment. Jesus is the ultimate friend who has chosen to commit to his friends. In the garden, before he was crucified, his friends betrayed him, denied him publicly, and abandoned him. And Jesus looked at his idiot, fair-weather friends, and he could have said, okay, I was going to go to the cross for y'all, but like, if this is how you're going to relate to me, then like, I'm not going to do it. Forget that. No. He says, okay, I will go to the cross and I will lay down my life for my friends who betray me and abandon me. And here's the truth. He lays down his life for us, for his friends, people like you and me, who constantly abandon him, constantly deny him, constantly betray him, which is the most devoted person in the room, constantly does this. And Jesus says, I will lay down my life for my friends and I will love you at all times. You can abandon me. I can benefit from loving you zero. And I will love you at all times. And he says, and I will commit to you. I will glue myself and bind myself to you. And I will never leave you and never forsake you. He commits. What about commiseration? Uh, When you're really hurting, a lot of times your friends don't really know what to do with you. But Jesus is the ultimate friend in that he cries with you, he hurts with you, he commiserates with you. The shortest verse in the New Testament is what? Jesus wept. He, He was so full of suffering and sorrow. The Bible actually uses that phrase that he was a man of sorrows to describe him. He left the glory of heaven to crawl down into the pit where you and I live hurt with us, just to be with us, which is what the word Emmanuel literally means, to be with, just to be with you in the bottom of the pit while you're hurting. Confrontation. Jesus is the ultimate friend in that he is willing to confront you. He is willing to bring your sin to the surface, not to fight against you, but to fight for you so that he can begin to burn away and melt away all that junk and ugly evil that's inside every one of us. He brings it out of us. Because he loves us. And what about confession? Jesus is the ultimate friend in that he he confesses to us. Not not that he's confessing his sin. He doesn't have sin to confess. But he confesses in the sense that he lets us into the deepest part of his heart. He is revealed and disclosed who he is in his word. Here's who I am. Here's the deepest part of my heart. What more of an emotional connection could you ask for? Do you see his wounds for you? Rather than inflicting wounds on us when we betray him, he bears wounds for us. He is the ultimate friend. Do you, but do you know him in that way? 
Do you know him in an intimate, personal way? Or is he just like an abstract thing in the sky that you kind of feel guilty about sometimes? Jesus says, I relate to my people as friends. And when you begin to enjoy and experience the intimacy of the ultimate friendship, that liberates you to become a good friend. It liberates you to actually become a good friend. So now you can take risks with your friends. You can say hard things out of love and you can share hard things. Uh, You can just be with them and hurt with them. You will be the friend that you want to be when you begin to enjoy the friendship of the ultimate friend. And then, in the Lord's providence, you'll be able to make the friends that you want to make. So here's the thing. The better friend you become, the better friends you will get. And the way that you become a better friend is that you connect with the ultimate friend. But here's the question. Is that true of you? Do you know him? Are you connecting with him? Because the invitation is before you to do so tonight. Come to him and rest in the friendship that he has for people like you and me who betray him all the time. He is the friend that loves at all times. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would um, give us eyes to see and hearts that would be moved to be drawn to the person of Jesus, to experience his friendship, to know his great love for us, his faithfulness, his commitment to us, that he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. He's always for us. He's always fighting for us. Father, I pray that these ideas and these words would not just be abstract theological ideas, but that we would personally sense your great love for us on our hearts. And Father, I pray that that would free us and change us and give us that inner fortitude that we need to actually become good friends. Father, I confess I'm a horrible friend. I don't keep up with my friends well. I don't know how to engage my friends personally and vulnerably. Would you help me? Help me to rely on Jesus and be filled with him and his spirit so that I may become the friend that I want to be. And I pray that you would help uh, my friends here tonight as well. Um, Trust in you. Lean on you so that you might enable our friendships to flourish and thrive. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.